LinkedIn presents. People have always been the key to unlocking business performance. Never has that been more true than today. I'm Lars Schmidt, and this is the Redefining Work podcast. In each episode, we speak with business leaders who are influencing modern work and people practices. This podcast is your key to understanding the link between business performance and progressive people strategies. And if you're a people leader wanting to have an impact on your business, I encourage you to join our community for progressive people leaders at AmplifyTalent.com slash community. This community is unlike anything you've experienced before. Want more direct insight? Here are some words from community members, Chloe Sesta Jacobs, Noah Warder, and Balbina Knight. The caliber of humans that I have met in this group is like nothing I've experienced before. It is truly the safest community I've ever been a part of. One of the things I love so much about the Amplify community is having the opportunity to connect with a global group of peers. And if you're a business leader on the market for a transformative people leader, be sure to check out our HR executive search services at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, on to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the LinkedIn Presents Redefining Work podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. And today is a special episode. You know, all these episodes are special. I'm the host, right? All these guests are amazing. And it's a privilege to be able to spend time with them and share their stories. But occasionally, I get to bring a guest on who is a friend and former colleague. And in this case, we get to do both. Today, I'm joined by Elise Hugh. Elise is the co-founder of Reasonable Volume. She is an author. She's a podcast host. She's a journalist. And she is one of the most talented people who I know. So I am really excited for those of you that don't elite, know Elise those are to get to know her. Expectations, Lars. Yeah, I'm setting the bar high, so <laughs> I, I I hope you can. Actually, I don't hope you can. I know you can. You're gonna you're gonna step over that bar, even though I've set it very high. So, uh, Elise, welcome to the show. Uh, I'd love to have you just open with an introduction. What do you want the audience to know about you? Hey there, uh, my name is Elise. I am based in Southern California, so I'm coming at you from Los Angeles. I am a mother of three in addition to my other hats. I have three elementary-aged girls, and so I do a lot of hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm somebody who is interested in a wide swath of things. I'm a former foreign correspondent, so I lived abroad for NPR in South Korea and covered a lot of East Asia, primarily Korea's, the, both the Koreas and Japan for nearly four years. Yeah. Well, you've done a lot. You continue to do a lot. We're going to get into all of that, but I want to I want to hit the rewind button first because as you mentioned, you kind of got your start in journalism. Yeah. Um and I think, you know, journalism and storytelling have always been, you know, a part of your DNA. Um where does that come from? Like walk walk me back. When did you first know that journalism was a career path you wanted to pursue? I've always, always, since my earliest memories, been a real curious person. So I think the world is fascinating and full of interesting people and ideas and phenomena. And I always had a lot of questions about them. And so I think all journalists share that trait, right? Just a pure curiosity. 
Um, and then on top of that, I was exposed at a very young age to broadcast news. So putting together a newscast and field reporting and anchoring and all those things that are involved in just the local news that you see on television, I was exposed to when I was in third grade in St. Louis. So I grew up in St. Louis and then Texas. And in St. Louis, I would get bussed away one day each week to a different learning center called the Center for Creative Learning, starting in second grade. And um, this is as part of the public school district there. I think it was like you would had some sort of aptitude test. And if you qualified, you would be um, part of this program. And the teaching at the Center for Creative Learning was different than what I got in, on the other four days of the week in that you would spend an entire semester. So students would get an entire semester in paleontology or something more obscure, right? Like the, the, the presidential primary process. And we would just spend an entire semester on that. One time we spent a semester putting together a computer from the parts we would have, wow. to have, we had to put together the mother motherboard and all the various cards that are involved in it and just really get our hands dirty. And one semester we focused on broadcast news and we learned all the components of a newscast and all the different roles that were involved. And I just remember that sparking something in me and how I really came alive. And I decided back then in third grade that it's what I wanted to do. And so it is debatable whether you should actually do for a living what you decide that you want to do when you're eight, but I did do that. And it felt really just um, this magic. It felt magical to me in that it was something that I personally had some sort of interest and like intuition about. And then I was introduced to how to make a living <laughs> by doing it. So I feel really tremendously lucky to have done that. Yeah. Well, I want to kind of pull on that. No, no, you didn't tell me that. That's, that's awesome. That what an amazing opportunity, you know, from an educational standpoint at a young age, but also how cool is it that you knew then? Like I knew it was in you for a long time. I didn't know this was like eighth grade, at least being like, yep, I'm going to be a journalist. So, um, let, let's, let's pull on that making a living thread for a moment because I want to, you know, I mentioned obviously at the beginning of the podcast that we were uh, colleagues. So Elise and I work together at NPR. Uh, Elise is still a host and does some uh, coverage for NPR. So she is still there. Uh, I departed about 10 years ago. So my, my time, but that's how we came to know each other. We had a chance to collaborate on some projects like Generation Listen uh, and other things there. So that's how we became kind of fast friends. Um, but I want to just kind of get your take on the state of journalism today. Uh, obviously, this has been a uh, part of your career since, you know, before it was your career, when it was your aspiration that it became your career. And you've seen a lot of changes, particularly in the way of, you know, digital, uh, you know, journalism and kind of uh, just the way that kind of online news has you know, grown in prominence, contracted again, we're recording this and, you know, a week after, you know, Vice having layoffs and just right. another kind of round of contraction that we're seeing. What is your perspective on just the, the field of journalism today? Well, it's pretty depressing. I mean, I've been despairing about what we've seen in media and in other sectors like gaming. There's more layoffs going on right now in the world of games. But in media in particular, we have seen what has been described as a near extinction level event. There have been so many shutdowns and layoffs, even 
a few years ago, the number of journalism jobs, so traditional sort of newspaper reporter jobs that were lost, were greater um, when adjusted for the for the population of total workers were greater than the rate of loss of coal mining jobs. And we've seen mm. all this attention on, of course, the, the changeover in the energy sector and how coal mining has lost its luster. And therefore, we've seen a lot of jobs go away. It has happened in a more severe way for journalists who are vital. I mean, I think journalism, of course, is vital, uh, a free and informed society and is so important to democracies, um, which <laughs> there's a lot of debate about how in jeopardy democracy is as well in not just the United States, but in various countries where we've seen the rise of polarism and authoritarianism. So first, it's something that I've been despairing about and deeply concerned about. Second, the writing was sort of on the wall in some ways when news organizations tried to compete at scale with tech companies and essentially become tech companies. And they ate our lunch. So during the yeah. age of Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, which was about 10, 12 years ago, all those organizations and Vice, of course, came up wanting to chase scale, wanting to chase as much eyeballs and get as much attention as possible. And there was no way, I think even back then, it was clear that there was no way <laughs> that um, – media companies could compete on the level of a Google or a Facebook um, and then the other sort of tech platforms that we're, we've seen on the rise in more recent years like TikTok. As a result, um, all these darlings of digital media that we did see about a decade ago, such as Vice, such as BuzzFeed, are essentially having to file for bankruptcy or get broken up into bits. And it's terrible because it's a terrible loss for not only labor and the people who are working for these organizations, but the ideas, the stories, the um, investigations that won't see the light of day as a result. Yeah. I have a lot of hope in nonprofit news. Um, something that I didn't mention in my intro is that I'm employee number three at the Texas Tribune, which was and is one of the big digital nonprofit news startups that started around the tens, the beginning of the tens, uh, like ProPublica. And it's funded primarily in the same way as public media is, except no corporation for public broadcasting. <laughs> but yeah. it's funded by grants. It's funded by individual memberships. It's funded by foundations. And the Texas Tribune is a real success story um, in that ecosystem, but there need to be so many more. Yeah. Wh why haven't we seen more? You know, I, I think particularly at this this moment in time and, and just to, you know, you touched on a lot of the current state and yeah. contraction and also kind of tying it to the th real threat that we're seeing around the world to democracy itself. Right. And I think uh, a healthy, robust, uh, again, creating a more informed public, a more informed citizenry is essential to a thriving democracy. And, you know, we've seen over the last, you know, eight years, the rise of or the weaponization, I should say, of misinformation, um, the erosion of, you know, real kind of investigative journalism and news stories. How, how do we how do we create more Texas Tribunes uh, in, in an environment where we really desperately need it, not just in the states, but around the world? Well, we can vote with our dollars, of course. Yeah. You know, I think that when we just when we are kind of deciding how to 
spend our money and our time and our energy, we often gravitate towards that which is most entertaining. So if I have a limited subscription dollar budget, I'm often paying for the a gazillion streamers that I now have to pay for, right? Like right. there was a show coming out on Peacock and I was like, you know what? I've hit the wall. I have too many streaming services. But those are now competing on the same level as local news sources, right? Or our, our local news sources. So whether it's the Indianapolis Star Tribune, the Denver Post, the Houston Chronicle, they those organizations are having to compete against Netflix and Max and whatever else for our attention and for our subscription dollars. And so I would be very intentional just about where our attention and our support goes. I think the nonprofit news ecosystem could be a lot stronger and could be further strengthened if there was more sort of collective support behind it. Um, how to galvanize that is really hard because it seems like it's such a patchwork. But I do think one direction that journalism and media is going to have to go as a result of Gen Z and Gen Alpha is in person. So we're going to, we're, we're likely because Gen Z and Gen Alpha is far less likely to want to meet online. We're seeing, you know, the dating apps are having trouble because Gen Z and Gen Alpha tend to want to be in real life um, and, and gathering in person. I think news has a real opportunity to adjust to that. And also hyper-local experiments continue to need to happen. We saw things like Patch, you know, I think also yeah. in that era that you and I worked together 10, 12 years ago. And that was a good idea in theory that was not well executed in that there does need to be news in local communities. And I think that's where trust is born too, because I am more likely to trust somebody that I know in person who I see at all, at all the school board meetings or the neighborhood council meetings that is a parent at my kid's school. And so if um, that is where trust primarily still exists between fabric the fab and brings together the fabric of communities, then that's where we have an opportunity to kind of inform each other. The problem is that a lot of these digital news organizations, as I mentioned, were trying to become bigger and bigger and bigger in order to IPO. And the profit motive really hurt, <laughs> hurt yeah. um, news organizations. Um, news organizations, newspapers in particular, had always been subsidized as um, vehicles for advertising. So nobody was actually paying for investigative news, right? They were paying for their newspaper that Ford and GM and all these other, and then the local. Uh, grocery stores were all advertising it and buying essentially rent in the paper. And that was actually paying for the investigations and the cultural coverage and everything else. Once Craigslist yeah. came about, that model went out the window. And so newspapers could no longer be subsidized by advertising. And we continue to be sort of groping around for some sort of sustainable model. Yeah. I really appreciate that perspective and context. And you're right. I think with uh, looking at how the newspapers have evolved, what I hadn't really considered is actually the the subscription component and the competition, right? It's like when we think about what we subscribe to, like that's kind of lump sum. It, it's all of the things. It is the Netflix. It's the Max. It's the Texas Tribune. It's, it's the, you know, it's the it's newsletter. So, so many yeah. journalists who are successful enough on their own can survive without the institution. They can survive right. as creator economy people. Yeah. 
Well, let's, I want to, the, the creator economy is a good segue to, I think your career, not that you're necessarily, I would place you in the creator economy. Like maybe I would actually, when I think about it, but I, what I would call you is a multi-hyphenate. And what I mean by that is you don't have really one career. You don't have one skill set. You have multiple parallel kind of careers happening simultaneously. And each of those careers requires a different, sometimes complementary, but not always skill set. And so I would love to like, just get inside your process, right? Like if you, when, when you are a, a journalist at the level that you are, when you are a podcast host and host in general at the level that you are, when you're an author at the level that you are, when you're staying informed and kind of maintaining that curiosity that you have around the world around you to be able to shape all of those things, you have to have that as a high level. So like, what is your process? Do you have a process? Am I, am I, am I assuming that you're going to give me some magic uh, playbook on how to effectively you know, manage uh, being at a high level in multiple different areas simultaneously? No, I'm a total chaos muppet, which is to say I rely <laughs> on help. So if, there's one, if there is one through line to my career and the way I mm-hmm. organize my days is that I am never afraid to ask for help. And I find that when people ask me for help and ask me for advice, I consider it kind of a love language. I think it's a gift. You know, when other people say to me, hey, what do you think about this? Or how is your experience here? And so I'm never shy about doing the same. And I have many, many mentors, many who are older than me and were my former bosses, and then many who are like 10 years younger than me, um, who I consider mentors as well that I'm constantly learning from. So I approach life as a kind of sponge. I think that babies are really inspiring in that if you observe a baby, they fail like 90% of the day. You know, they're like constantly trying to sit up or roll over or stand and they're like falling over and falling over and falling over until they get it. And as we get older, primarily in our adolescence, we start being scared of failing and trying things because we develop a yeah. kind of subjectivity and self, self-consciousness. And I think that can be so paralyzing to our personal growth. And so I constantly just try to remember that mindset of a young person and the wonder that they have when they approach the world. And I think, you know, you've hung out with me. <laughs> So, you know, I still uh, am very easily amused. (laughs) I think that's really important to preserve. Not only just the wonder of being alive, but the curiosity and then the um, openness to trying things and being bad at them. Like I swing and I miss a lot. What you see or what my resume tends to indicate is that are my successes or things where I did get the book deal and I did do this thing. But most of the time, I don't, right? And so, but I'm unafraid about it. And it's really helped me learn and grow as a human and have a career trajectory that's a little bit less tied to an institution in particular. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. 
On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Yeah, you know, I love that. I love that, you know, that 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 baby mindset. Um, but you're right. I think, you know, as we get older, the fear kind of holds us back. And it's fascinating. I, you know, I've had so many of these conversations with people who are at the very top of their respective fields and their different game and their whatever role they may be in. And one common aspect that you touched on as well is that the people who are the most effective in the roles have tons of questions and are never scared to ask questions. They're never scared to be curious, to want to know more. They, what, what I find is that I think a lot of times people feel like, ah, oh, well, if I ask this question, yeah, it's going to make it obvious that I don't know this. And then maybe they're going to think that I'm out of my league. And then, so I'm just going to soldier on and kind of, you know, just figure this out on my own. And like, that's actually not the right way. Like it's actually, it's just, I, I, I appreciate you stating that specifically because I think that maintaining that curiosity, particularly in a role like yours, where you're doing a lot of different things, you're experiencing a lot of things for the first time, you know, you're learning new tools, you're learning new approaches. And uh, if you're not, you know, curious, but, uh, and humble about that, uh, you could easily kind of, you know, just, just, you know, steal yourself against the notion that you have any growth and get a fixed mindset and then you're, you're, you're stuck. So I, I love that insight. Um, I want to shift gears to your book. Speaking of multi-hyphenate, we'll, we'll, we'll shift over from like journalist, uh, Elise to author Elise. Okay. And you published a book last year called Flawless and it was based on your time in Korea. And I want to just kind of get back to the, origin of that. So for all the audience who may not be familiar with the book, you know, give us a window into how the book came to be when you knew this was something that you wanted to write. Uh, and I'd followed some of your kind of reporting at NPR uh, as you were working on some things that I think in hindsight probably led you to this moment, uh, yeah, right? And some of the absolutely. different stories and things that you worked on. But I'd love to just hear a bit more from you, like how it came to be and give the uh, audience an overview of the book. Yeah. And sorry, my mic keeps like, it's slowly, it's drifting away from me on its own as we talk. It's a heavy mic. It, it, it doesn't look light. That, that arm. Come <laughs> back to me. So I just want to acknowledge it so everybody knows what I'm doing here. Uh, <laughs> so I, it, in, many, in many interviews, I have described Flawless as my unfinished business. So you yeah. bring up a really um, important and valid point, which is that there was there were hints of my curiosities in beauty culture and South Korea's dominance just culturally, generally across the world, K-pop, K-film, K-drama, that I was, I was already kind of reporting in my nearly four years as Seoul Bureau Chief for NPR, but never really got to go in-depth on. And what's more in-depth than an 80,000-word book? 
So when I came home, so when I came home, I, 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 I was noodling around and I was thinking, you know, what if some of the biggest questions that were still nagging at me when I moved home, I could ask, I could pose and do some additional reporting on. And so the general thesis of Flawless is that South Korea, which became a pop culture juggernaut, Six out of 10, all Netflix subscribers in the world have viewed some sort of South Korean content. For Americans, it tends to be Squid Game and or K-dramas. And it's also one of the world's first fully wired nations. So nationwide broadband since the early 90s. And South Korea essentially shows us how the future has already arrived in a lot of ways when it comes to futuristic beauty filters. So on our social media, yeah. the kinds of algorithmically driven, artificial AI generated filters that are now all over the place. They also showed us how medical advances um, and the amplification of medical advances across society can set and dictate beauty standards. So it's kind of about the notion of technology and how digital technology is changing our actual faces in our bodies. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so fascinating when you think about the time that we're in and how quickly we seem to have gotten here, right? Like, you know, we're both digital natives in the sense of like, you know, I know I'm a little bit older than you, but kind of coming of age when like digital and technology and even online wasn't much of a thing. And then obviously, you know, now it's like, it's in everything that's happened in a lifetime, right? Yeah. Less than a lifetime. Absolutely. And so when when you, like, based on some of the research for the book and just how the book has maybe shaped your views towards beauty, even beyond South Korea, what role do you think kind of these beauty standards play in society today in terms of, like, how we view each other? I think it over-focuses our attention on looks. It ends mm -hmm. up making us tie our worthiness to our visuals and our aesthetics way too much. Um, when beauty, I think of as more of an idea like love or um, or truth, you know, these ideas that don't necessarily aren't necessarily expressed visually, right? Beauty is yeah. something that you can feel when you're out in nature, for example. But instead, when we think of beauty now, we think of it as what is visually in front of us, so external beauty. So I think. The fact that our society has just become so much more visual has then increased our emphasis on looks and, and can make it harder on all of us because we're judging each other with these quick judgments visually. The other is that with algorithms kind of driving our lives, algorithms tend to promote that which gets the most engagement. So we have yeah. seen, especially in places like what was formerly known as Twitter, a a um, lean towards extremism, right? Because extreme content tends to get more engagement because it gets people's emotions and their lizard brains working. Algorithms also promote a certain kind of sameness, right? So if you are indicating that you kind of like this kind of content or that kind of star, then there are certain physical characteristics that become repeated to us over and over and over again. Um, the Kardashian look, for example, is generally the look on many filters. So you want to have bigger lips and higher cheekbones and maybe a more narrow nose and maybe a more narrow jawline. All of those things algorithms promote to us as a result of taking in a bunch of 
images that are that we consider beautiful, right? That show up in our endless scroll. And so there's an internet driven, um, like sameness or homogeneity that I don't really appreciate. I think that what happens is that it takes away our difference and our appreciation for difference. And it's incredibly marginalizing for anybody who doesn't fit in. So anybody who is considered too big or too short or has freckles or has blemishes or has dark, dark skin that's considered too dark or skin that's considered too light or, you know, bodies that are considered too hairy when really the human experience and the and what's so beautiful about being a human is diversity and difference. And what I think we run the risk of in a very algorithmic gaze is that disappearing or erasure of difference. Yeah. I'm curious, how how do you see this playing out? Because you mentioned kind of early in the show, like Gen Y and Gen Alpha are leaning more towards in-person meetings, kind of bucking this online community trend that, you know, we've seen, you know, be a heavy part of recent generations. Do you see perhaps something similar happening with the kind of uh, algorithmication of beauty, right? Like people starting to push away from filters, people starting to really embrace uh, and celebrate difference and realness over that. Do, is there is there a hope for that? Obviously, I wouldn't have written the book and I wouldn't be out here talking about these topics if I didn't have hope for it. I don't think we have a choice yeah. but to be hopeful because <laughs> otherwise we're yeah. putting it in the sand and being fatalistic. <laughs> Yeah. But I do think these forces that end up governing our lives are quite powerful and it's hard to stand up against, which is why it's all the more important for us to kind of think critically about how we're changing our bodies or the questions that we have about maybe augmenting this or augmenting that and why why are we doing it? What is it for? Um, I do think there is some pushback. We have seen body acceptance really grow in a lot of ways. I think a lot of the things I was watching Pitch Perfect the other day. Remember that movie with Rebel Wilson mm-hmm. and Anna Kendrick? So Rebel Wilson's character was called Fat Amy. And I don't yeah. think that if what you tried to get a movie made in 2024, that would be acceptable, right? Because we have now stopped conflating, you know, thinness with health, which was yeah. a real fallacy in our thinking, I think, coming up for me in the in the 80s and 90s. And so, so I do think body acceptance and body neutrality has really grown. But in some ways, for all the progress that we've made against diet culture, beauty culture has only gotten more prominent. So it's okay to be fat. Now it's not okay to have any wrinkles, right? So you have younger and younger generations who are worried about skincare and having a skincare routine. And a lot of that is the growth of consumerism and the beauty industry wanting to find new customers. And that's just, that is worrying to me. And if we are chasing algorithmically or artificially driven standards of beauty, then there is no end point because by their very definition, artificial filters are artificial. They're not human. And so we end up chasing this kind of cyborgian standard. And that, um, I think that we're having a real conversation about now and we better. The question is, you know, how much can we do about it? Are there regulations that are coming down um, the pipe that might include 
certain limitations on young people and social media, right? Or young people and filters or regulation on the development of filters or the use of AI for body modification or, or setting certain standards for body modification. I think we're still in the early days, which is why it's all the more important that all of us kind of call attention to this and work on solutions as human beings. Yeah. Um, well, Lise, this has been amazing. I have one last question for you, but before I ask this question, before we kind of transition from flawless, uh, where can the audience find your book? Uh, you can find it anywhere you get books. So there's an audio book, an ebook, a hardcover copy that you can get at any bookstore, indie or otherwise. Um, but you can find information and links all at my website, elisehugh.com. Okay. There you go. You got options is, is, is what Elise is saying. Um, last question I want to, I want to get your take on is, uh, and this will be a fairly high level question. So feel free to uh, treat it as such, but you know, you, you touched several times on the impact of, uh, you know, AI and generative AI specifically as it relates to kind of some of these algorithms and social media. Um, certainly it connects over to some of the polarization, uh, that we've seen in social media and the amplification of divisive uh, you know, rhetoric. I think that 2024 is the year that we are now starting to see um, jobs at scale, you know, begin to be impacted mm-hmm. by generative AI in some organizations. Um, look at, you know, the release of, not even the release, the preview of Sora, uh, you know, just a, a week ago. And Tyler Perry is already putting the brakes on an $800 million studio uh, expansion. I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of ramifications of what generative AI will be and will become. And I know you've covered technology extensively. You're much more informed than I am. Like, what is your just general perspective on generative AI and what feels like kind of a runaway locomotive of adoption uh, that we're seeing in business, uh, you know, beginning now? I would say the generative AI has already been around and has been around for a long time. We've just seen such advances in it within the last year or so in a way that really directly um, interfaces with us. Like we can actually query things with it and we can actually develop graphics. But generative AI as a technology has been around since around to consumers since, gosh, Google Maps, right? Like those map functioning, uh, that map functioning and smart virtual personal assistants that we use, Alexa, um, Amazon, Amazon's Alexa, for example, those are all building on the same concepts that generative, generative AI builds on. So I, I think this is a really difficult question and don't catch me lying (laughs) as we say in Texas, but, um, the most thoughtful take that I've seen on this era that we're living in now, because it's already here. I don't think it's the the, the cows away from the barn. Um, And I don't think it's time to be like, oh, should we do it? You know, because we already do. (laughs) That ship has sailed. Yes. But um, Ted Chang, who is the science fiction writer, was interviewed, I think, in Vanity Fair. And then he wrote a piece in The New Yorker on what his primary concerns are about this age of AI. And I don't want to misrepresent or get them wrong. But I do think um, it's already arrived. Let us try and have more voices in the room in the data and the development of AI. One of the big problems with 
tech platforms and all the tech innovation that we've seen in the last 15, 20 years is that it comes from these companies and certain engineers and certain individuals that all have a perspective. And that's not necessarily representative of the United yeah. States. It usually isn't the representative of the United States and, and, and moreover, the world at large, even though these technologies do impact the world. And so um, my personal take on all of this is just that it needs to be far bigger tent, that I really worry about these technologies being in the hands of profit-driven businesses um, because they are humanity-changing. And you don't want to have godlike powers um, that are all concentrated in one room. Yeah. I'm actually going to just leave that at that last statement because I think that was bold and powerful and I think a pretty important kind of call to action for all of us. Um, Elise, thank you so much for for making time to come on the podcast, sharing your multi-hyphenate career with us. Uh, and again, if you want to get your hands on Flawless or follow Elise's work, EliseHugh.com. Check that out and uh, keep creating cool shit. I've just, I've really loved watching your career unfold and the things that you've built and just seeing you kind of pursue those passions that you have. Uh, it's been amazing to watch um, from well, the sideline. I and I appreciate you kind of coming on the show and giving us a bit more you. of a firsthand window. Um, I didn't mean to talk over you, Lars. I was just going to say, you know, I could say the exact same things about you and you're so inspiring to watch. You were always my favorite person in HR with the much maligned division. <laughs> Always my favorite person because you're always thinking and inventing and hopeful about changing things for the better. So thank you. And thank you for your years of friendship. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. That is kind. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll be catching up with some uh, coffee next time I'm in LA. All right. You bet. Thanks for tuning into this episode of LinkedIn Presents Redefining Work. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, and more, be sure to check out our website at amplifytalent.com slash redefining dash work. And if you want to connect with me directly, you can find me on my website at larsschmidt.com or feel free to post on social using the hashtag redefining work and I will find you. And if you dig this podcast, I'd love for you to share it with your peers and your friends and help them discover it. And if you really dig this podcast, please leave a review on whatever podcast delivery your ears prefer. I'll see you next week. 